Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. I'm Stephen Kilpatrick, your host for the evening. Step inside the cabin. We've got some stories for you. Now, this is usually where I might remark on the weather, and it's done just to pass the time. However, this is the fourth and final week that we will be fundraising for a while. The goal was to hear from everybody on staff, myself, Philip Oldham, and Scott Silk. Well, where Philip lives, they've got over two feet of snow recently, and he's been struggling with just the power at his house, which is going in or out. On the other hand, here, March started off a little snowy, but by the end of the month, it was one of the hottest Marches I can remember. Maybe climate change, or maybe weather has always been this strange. So, getting his little bit to us has been a challenge. Let's dive in, though, and we'll hear from Tony first. So this is the fourth and final time for our, you know, Tales to Terrify fun drive, month-long fun drive, where you've heard me, you know, and imaginary scene me walking around with cap in hand trying to raise some funds for for Tales to Terrify and for all the District of Wonders shows. And like I say, you've heard me waffle on. And what I want to do now, though, is just for this final time, is bring in the, you know, Tales to Terrify, everyone at Tales to Terrify. And yes, you've heard Stephen talk as well, but we'll get Stephen as well to have a little few words. But also everyone, you know, who works behind the scenes to kind of tirelessly bring you this fantastic show. You know, Scott there and Philip, you know, and hopefully we can get, you know, get you inspired to kind of come over to Perion and you know, do the right thing. So I'm just going to hand you over to Stephen. Our money drives are important to us. We ran into some dire straits at the end of last year, and things are better than they were thanks to you. 
Tony's looking to the future on how we can make our fiscal foundations as stable as possible, while also looking to grow and expand into something better than what we are already. So for those that have already donated, thank you. For those who are about to donate, or better still, becoming a regular contributor through Patreon, I say thank you and thank you again. Good evening, children of the night. Assistant Editor Philip here. Now, Tony may have his hat out, but I just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Last fall, we were on the verge of shutting the show down because donations just weren't coming in. And in the time frame of about two months, not only did you, our listeners, come together to keep the show going, but we have actually managed to keep all three of our District of Wonders shows on the air. And here it is, spring 2016, and we're contemplating what it will take to become a professional market, paying our authors, our narrators, and, well, fingers crossed, our staff. This show has always been a labor of love. And when Larry passed, it was with oh, heavy hearts that we kept the show going in his memory, and it has exploded since then, and I'm sure he would be proud of us. So here's what we need from you. First, if you're donating already through our Patreon account, thank you. If you're not, please consider a monthly donation of one, two, even five dollars a month, less than Taco Bell or a cup of coffee. That really makes a difference. Also, please review us on iTunes. The more reviews we get on iTunes or on Facebook, or whatever your podcatcher of choice is, the more people that will listen. And the more people listening, the more people likely to help us achieve that goal of becoming a professional market. Now, we want to keep this podcast free and ad-free as much as we can. So, and that is really what you've asked of us. So please, we're not scared of the dark but every little bit helps us keep the lights on here's scott hello children of the night this is scott silk the most recent member of the editorial staff at tales to terrify i want to say what a pleasure it is to work with such a fantastic team of editors authors and narrators to produce this podcast and i hope that you the listeners will help us continue to do that by donating if you can Beyond that, I would love to reach our goal to be able to pay our authors for providing us with such terrifying tales. So please consider visiting our Patreon page and signing up as one of our patrons. Thank you. There you go. What can I say? We're all in this together. Do you know what I mean? If you want kind of tales to terrify to keep on going, we would love to do it. Do you know what I mean? A big thank you to Stephen, Philip and Scott and Laura. It really does get it gets to us to be quite honest when i know how well this show's going do you know what i mean what we've achieved with tales to terrify do you know what i mean years 2000 shows and a couple of years of quite a few years ago now it started and the figures are for me just brilliant do you know what i mean over this time starships over and tales to terrify when i look at the kind of big scary figures of how many you know we've been we've kind of had downloaded we're close to seven million downloads generally oh yeah man seven million you know over the course of these 10 years and tales to terrify has certainly pushed that figure well up you know so what can i say a big thank you to steven to everyone 
who's kind of helped on Tales to Terrify. Let's keep it going. That's all, that's all I want, and I know that's all you want. Massive thank you for your support. Thank you so much. Let's move on to our stories for the night. Our first story comes from John B. Ford, a British horror writer and publisher. He left school at the age of 16 and spent the next decade and a half working a variety of jobs, such as car park attendant and factory worker. On New Year's Day of 1995, he suffered a panic attack and as a result focused himself on writing. The following year, he established Big Jolly Man Press and launched Terror Tales magazine. That seems like a good pick of a name. BJM Press has published chapbooks from many authors you know and love, including Paul Kane, who we have heard a lot of his work over the past few weeks. John's list of short stories is extensive. Many of his shorts can be found in the books Dark Shadows on the Moon, Tales of Devilry and Doom, and The Evil Entwines. He also has published novella The Haunted Ocean. And now, we will hear John B. Ford's To Dwell on Tainted Ground. Prologue On my recent travels through the bleak and unpopulated areas of western Ireland, I came across a deserted old house stood at the edge of a pine wood. The outer door stood open, and so I entered inside. Walking down a corridor, I found a door to my left, and passing through it, entered into what once had obviously been a library. Strangely, the room seemed to be burnt and charred in many places, and upon a table in the center of the room I saw what appeared to be a time-yellowed manuscript. Though scorched in places, I saw the content of the manuscript was still perfectly legible, and I found it to be some kind of account written by a former owner of the house. Recorded on this document was every aspect of the time the man had spent within this house, It is the strangest thing I have ever read. From every single sentence that passed before my eyes, there issued the incredible feeling that all this could be true. What other conclusions I reached I will keep to myself. The entire manuscript was printed out in full for the first time. I leave you to make your own judgment. J.B.F. Darkness. Hush, and hark to the sighs of the dark, to the creatures of fear who feed on my fright, and in me a craving for God's holy light. But the flowers of dawn will sway in the threat of the swift coming night and the sun made to set, for this sun made to set is a time-ravaged orb that gives out false hope but will only absorb all the fluid of life and the essence of souls. It dims before time and lets death steal our goals. Tearfully I pray for the dying. Yes, tearfully I pray for this dying earth. N.B. This poem I found written on a separate piece of paper. There are ungodly things happen in this house that should not be. I came here five years ago seeking solitude at a place of sanctuary from the world. Since that time I have witnessed many strange events that can only be described as bizarre and unholy. For more than sixty years this house stood untenanted, apparently having had some kind of a reputation.' 
At first I scoffed at this, but as time went by, I came to realize that its reputation was well-deserved, for the things I've witnessed here are unnatural and have no place within God's holy scheme of things. More alarming still is the fact that these events I speak of are not confined to the house. The whole surrounding area is tainted ground, belonging more to the devil than anything holy. The house itself is a mansion that stands alone at the edge of a dark pine wood. With the exception of one small village, there are no dwellings for miles in any direction. And so I must now relate to you of these weird happenings, for I feel in writing this down I will perhaps make sense of things in my own mind. The first few weeks here were of quietness, though at times I did have the queer feeling I was being secretly observed. The house still being without electricity, it was lit only by candlelight, and many times I would find myself studying the darkly shadowed areas of rooms. Almost certain I was not alone. At night, as I walked the long dark corridors, I would often pass through areas of curious coldness that could not be explained. Then, at the beginning of my fourth week here, something happened that would make most people leave instantly. I had chosen for my bedroom a room on the upper corridor beneath the attic. On the night in question, it was about midnight, and as I lay in bed reading, drowsiness slowly came over me, so that soon I extinguished my candle, intending to sleep. Then, as I lay back on my pillow, I heard a noise, the creaking of the attic door, and as I lay there in the darkness, there came another sound, the sound of soft footsteps coming down the corridor. At the point outside my door they stopped, and it seemed to me then that someone or something was listening for my breath, trying to determine whether sleep had yet taken me or not. Quickly I reached for the matches and relit my candle. Summoning my courage, I left my bed and walked towards the door. Taking hold of the handle, I opened it rapidly. There was nothing to be seen. But then, when I walked the corridor and checked the attic door, I found it locked as it had been since the time of my arrival. The rest of the night I hardly slept. The next day my books arrived from the village. They came on a cart driven by a peasant who for some reason seemed in a constant state of fear. He unloaded them as though every second counted, and when I offered him money, he backed away in a state of great terror. Still, what need have I for people? I was glad to see him go. The rest of the day I spent stalking the library with my books and reading those of the former occupant, which remained upon the shelves. Curiously, these were of witchcraft, and I found them fascinating. By the end of the day I was tired from my exertions and so retired early to bed. Sleep came to me instantly, but in the early hours of the morning I suddenly awoke shivering. The entire room seemed filled by an unnatural coldness, and this time a sense of fear cut deep inside me. I heard something that sounded like a footstep, and as I lay there in the darkness listening, my blood turned to ice when I heard my name called from outside the door. And though inside I was quaking in fear, my thoughts were also of anger, 
for this was now my house, and nothing would alter that fact. Again I lit the candle and moved towards the door, and with a sudden movement I passed through it into the corridor. The flame from my candle lit the surrounding darkness, but still displayed nothing unusual. Then, as I looked further down the corridor, I saw a dark, shadowy shape stood before the balustrade of the staircase. In the next instant it began to descend the stairs. I followed, walking rapidly, and almost fooled myself I had it on the run, for it had seemed to me something like the outline of a man, and as I descended the staircase I heard the sound of the heavy oaken door to the library creaking open. Standing still for a moment at the foot of the stairs, I listened, but no further sound came to me, and so I gathered my wits and walked towards the library. As I stepped inside, my candle went out, as though somehow snuffed, and in a state of sheer panic I heard the door slam shut behind me. In the next second all hell seemed to break loose. From the shelves I heard the sound of books being flung from every direction at once, and then I could take no more, so that I thought I would die from the sheer terror of it all. But as my screams rang through the air, I felt my throat gripped so tightly that my breath was stifled. I raised my hands to release whatever held me, but they touched nothing beside my own skin. Mercifully, I passed out. Next morning I awoke to the light of dawn, entering in through the leaded windows. Seeing the floor was scattered with books, I set about the task of picking them up, but as I did so I noticed that all were the books that I had brought there. The ones of the former occupant remained upon the shelves. In a corner of the room I saw that something had been ripped into shreds. When I walked over to examine it I saw it was the Bible. It was at that point when I almost left this place. My immediate reaction was one of complete horror, but as I thought about the matter, my stubborn nature again resurfaced. This was merely a scare tactic, a stunt to make me leave the house, but I would not leave. My throat still hurt sorely, and upon examination in the mirror I saw five lacerations of the skin and an odd grayness in the surrounding area. Later that morning I left the house and walked into the pine wood, for I needed fresh air and time to think on things. The morning mist still hung amongst the trees, mixing with shadow and concealing green foliage. I noticed that the whole wood seemed oddly quiet. No bird sang, nor was there any sign of one. I had ventured maybe a mile from the house when I heard the distinct sound of twigs breaking underfoot. Then, when I happened to glance to my right, I saw what looked to be dark, shadowy shapes moving along to keep pace with me. But perhaps this was just an overwrought imagination, for in the next second I saw nothing. Trying to put the thought out of my mind, I continued walking. It was as I walked around a mass of thick rhododendron bushes that I saw something that definitely wasn't imagination. A figure of evil stood before the swirling mist, its entire body covered by black, leathery skin. It faced in my direction and studied me with green, luminous eyes of a vile intelligence. At that moment my nerves gave way. 
I turned quickly and ran madly in the direction of the house, but as I did so a dark satanic howl filled the entire wood, and I knew I was being pursued. I heard the sound of movement all around, and it seemed to me that every moment the unholy presences of the wood closed in. But somehow the sheer terror added speed to my flight, so that at last I broke free from the confines of the wood and ran across the open space of the lawns to the house. When I entered inside, I immediately locked both outer doors and secured every window, for it came to me then that the thing in the wood had been cloven-hoofed, and that I knew the whole wood to be populated by the spawn of the devil. The rest of that day I spent reading in the library, for though now a great fear had accosted me, still a burning curiosity remained within my mind. I needed to know more of this strange place. I would make an effort to understand it, and so I began to read the books on witchcraft, the days turning to weeks as I became engrossed by them. The house became quiet, almost as though on its best behavior on approval of my research. But as time passed by, a thing of physical curiosity began to bother me, for the patch of grayness on my neck had begun to spread upwards and onto my face. At this point I gave up traveling to the village for my food supplies, for my physical appearance had begun to attract attention. Instead, I deposited monies at a store, and had my groceries left once a month in a disused cattle shelter about a mile from the house. This routine carried on for over four years, and in this time I began to feel more at one with the house, almost a part of it. Then one day I came across a self-penned book of experiences and vile practices. A previous tenant had studied and practiced the black arts. What unholy things had been unleashed into the house and the surrounding grounds? With a sudden horrible realization, I knew the house approved of what I was doing. I was being drawn towards these evil practices. Anger flooded through me. I collected every one of those satanic books and carried them to the front lawn, stacking them together. Dousing them thoroughly with paraffin, I struck a match, threw it, and watched them burn. But as the flames flickered upwards... I looked back toward the house once more, and for the first time in five years I became afraid. And though the house continued in its quietness, still a sense of fear grew in me, for I knew it merely bided its time. It would have vengeance. The quietness ended a month ago, Late one night as I walked the upper corridor to my bedroom, I noticed the attic door stood ajar. At that, a chord of terror struck deep within me, but still a sense of curiosity reigned. I approached it, and by the light of my candle I saw a flight of small wooden steps leading up into darkness. I walked upwards slowly and in silence, prepared to turn and flee at the slightest noise. At the top of the stairs I saw another door, I turned the handle and opened it inwards, my candlelight partially illuminating a dust-filled room. The nearest part of the room appeared to be empty, but further away I saw something laid upon the floor in a more darkly shadowed area. I walked cautiously across the floor towards this object, feeling drawn by something more than curiosity, 
but with the revelation of what I then saw, I froze in terror. Before me lay an open coffin, and within lay the grave-faced corpse of a man. And as I stood there, paralyzed by fear, the eyes of the corpse opened. A draft of wind came from nowhere to extinguish the flame of my candle, and at that moment my screams filled the air, for the eyes of the man had focused on me. They burnt through the darkness like two glowing orbs of fire. I thank God that I regained the ability to move so that I fled from that terrible room, slamming the door shut behind me. The remainder of that night I spent downstairs in the kitchen, but still the thought came to me that no room in this house would be truly safe, and now I feared no more for my life, I feared for my very soul. For when I stared upon the face of that corpse, its features had changed in one instant to those of my own. I fear now that these days and nights will be my last. I have neither the will nor the ability to take any place in society. My bodily strength seems to be waning now. The grayness now covers my entire face. Yesterday evening I tried to lose myself by reading a book in the library. Suddenly an extreme coldness radiated through my entire body, and a feeling came to me that I was being watched. I looked over toward the leaded windows and saw two green eyes that gazed in at me. It was one of the devil creatures from the wood. A sudden terror ran through me, for I remembered the outer door was still unlocked. I crossed the room quickly, and those terrible, staring eyes followed me. Then, as I hurried down the corridor towards the outer door, I heard a sound of shuffling that came from beyond it. In a mad dash, I ran towards it, but before I got there, the handle began to turn. Quickly, I dived forwards and somehow managed to slide the bottom bolt across before the thing made entrance. Then, as I stood listening, I heard more shuffling and the strange, distorted sound of inhuman voices. In the next instant, my head became filled with the sound of a dark, satanic howling. This time it held a quality of anger such as I'd never known. Excruciating pain filled my entire body, and darkness descended before my eyes. I woke the next day, midway through the afternoon. My body was still painful, and I felt as weak as a baby. Then, when I lifted my hands to my face, I felt a dried crusting of blood that had flowed from my ears. Somehow I crawled to the library, and here I have remained since that time. And now, as the day draws toward its close and darkness once more descends, I feel I cannot withstand the coming horrors the night will again hold for me. A short time ago I managed to walk to the storeroom. I returned here with a container of paraffin. I've doused half the room with it. Tonight I will die, and this house will die with me. This account is now one of supreme irony. It will burn unread, just as I will burn with my dark story untold. I've lit the fire, and may the Lord purify this house. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. House with its flames. Already half the room is burning. I hear the roar and feel the heat upon my body. But wait. My God, please help me. Something is forming amongst the flames. It's staring at me from amid the flames. Please, God, it's moving towards me. It's reaching. Epilogue. Here the account ended. There was no sign of a corpse in the room, and the rest of the house is undamaged. Out of curiosity, I walked up to the attic, but found it locked. One strange fact I've neglected to tell you is that, despite what the account says, I found the library stocked with arcane books of witchcraft. I've since read many of them, and find them fascinating. In doing so, I have reached my own conclusion about what formed amongst the flames. It is too incredible to even impart to you. This whole house interests me intensely. J.B.F. That was John B. Ford's To Dwell on Tainted Ground, as read by Martin Rato. In a variegated working life, Martin has been a parent, a technical writer, and software developer, a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, symphony musician, and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. As always, thank you, Martin. Next up will be a story from Rick Kennett. He was born and lives in Melbourne, Australia, where he works in the transportation industry as a motorcycle courier. His first published story was Troublesome Green. Following behind that story were many others, such as Isle of the Dancing Dead, Due West, and Chinese Whispers. Also, his short, The Dark and What It Said, landed him a Dittmar Award for Best Short Story. Our ally in the dim light of the podcastosphere, Pseudopod, aired his story, The Dark and What It Said, in episode 272. I'll link to that if you are interested. Rick also featured in the 1970s a lesbian heroine of a reaction to, as he describes, one too many encounters in fiction with representations of lesbianism as a very bad thing. And to that I say, well done, Rick. In the show notes will be a link to Rick's homepage. Check out his whippets and his necrotourism. And now we will be hearing Rick Kennett's log recording found in a dead man's gut. 
some humorist had scrawled janitor on my coffin. It had been a joke with the early corpsicle ships, but nowadays it was wearing thin. Besides, I'd only had a month's sleep, subjectively speaking, and I was in no laughing mood. Usually, a corpsicle jockey can count on a straight sleep in, a cold run all the way without being awakened to tend to a loose bivet or a D-cube primary thermal transfer or a cryogen valve packing up on one of the passenger coffins. Modules, as they're properly known. Being woken only three weeks into the voyage made me feel, well, cheated somehow. For ten or fifteen minutes after coming out of suspended animation, I floated unmoving in the zero-g of the ship, letting myself thaw, the usual drill. Maybe I had some vain hope that the computer would do the decent thing and put me back to sleep. Surely not enough faults could have developed in the weeks of ship time to warrant my awakening. Moving my limbs gingerly as circulation quickened, I rose and pulled on a thermal suit against the ship's permanent cold. I was ready to take a hammer to the computer if it didn't have a damn good reason for getting me up. On the fault indicator screen, the same humorist, probably one of the ground crew who should never have been left in charge of a crayon, had scrawled, What could ever possibly go wrong? I wiped it off with a sneer and some spit, then hit the misery button, the report key and listen to the infernal machine's tinny excuse for a voice. Auxiliary sensors malfunctioning. Z-sector pressure seal A35GH-XT leaking. Sus and mod 201-287-393-977-1078. Life support monitors inoperative. And so it went, just... Select the action item and up pop details, analysis, diagrams, you name it, about any one of the gaggle of glitches which had built up over the past 21 days. None were critical, but there were so many that the computer had finally decided to pull the ship's handyman out of cold storage. The electrosled drifted me and my equipment down the long, coiling corridor which wound deep into the interior of the ship, like frosty glass intestines. Along the way I scraped some of the frost away and peered in at the various coffins, their naked occupants reposing in a frozen half-death. But I couldn't stop long. Moving on again, before I could start to wonder about them, start to feel lonely. It was about six hours later before I was able to tackle the last job, realigning a pump that had inexplicably moved on its bearings. I was hunting around for my tools, muttering because I seemed to have misplaced two or three, when I heard something crackle as my boots touched a surface. Ice, I thought, then remembered there was no ice, only thin frost. Besides, it didn't feel slippery, but sticky. I stooped next time it happened and picked up a filmy cup shape that dissolved almost immediately into a drippy mucus in my glove. I couldn't understand it, so, being human, I ignored it, or tried to. Riding the sled back to my coffin, I thought I saw them again, here and there, floating in odd notches and spaces. The experts say you don't dream in suspended animation. Hell, what do they know? 
I was going through the second warm-up of the voyage. I had a memory, more an impression, that something had been peering down at me through the lid. Like all dreams, the more I tried to recall it, the more it eluded me, and by the time I dressed and responded to the computer, it was a fading uneasiness. Anyway, now I was angry. The screen was giving me the come hither with another run of faults and breakdowns, and this time they'd built up in a mere week. A week! A lousy seven days! And the bloody ship was falling to bits again. Was I making corpsical history or what? I'd heard of jockeys being busy before, but this was ridiculous. And to make matters worse, hardly before I dressed, my bowels reacted against my agitation, causing me to wobble off to the toilet. Afterwards, I had to do some impromptu plumbing to stop the damn thing flushing. Set graph stabs T-cubed. Port lighting circuit faulty. Valve 3 water storage tank 9 leaking. And on and on and on. All routine work, too. Nothing to take me outside on the hull or into exotic parts like the star drive. Pressure monitor chase section in op. Pump 1 ref hold 4 in op. Air filters vent room 2 in op. Toilet still flushing. A long time later, I sledded back to my living area, completely leg-headless with fatigue. After a meal of regurgitated algae, it occurred to me that I hadn't seen any more of those filmy cup things. Perhaps I hadn't seen them at all. This is what I told myself, and even began to believe it. After a long, authentic, warm sleep, I began a final unhurried inspection of the ship. Big, quiet, and empty, except for my 2,000 passengers, who weren't much company. I opened inspection hatches, checked storerooms, and refrigeration holds. It took three hours and kept my mind busy, which was a good thing. Otherwise, I could easily have believed the whisperings following me were real. I dreamt of the face again, an ovoid smudge but with eyes vivid and ruby red staring. Then my dream shuddered, the face blurred, and I began to defrost. The computer was flashing lights I never knew it had, the closest thing I'd ever seen to electronic panic. I pressed the misery button. Instead of the usual litany of faults and minor malfunctions, the screen came alive with the words, Computer Initiative. The damn computer was thinking for itself. Bad news at the best of times. The worst sort of news now. The two words blinked out, replaced by a long list entitled Major Damage. Over a third of the ship was exposed to vacuum, with many sections wrecked by flash decompression. Hatches and bulkheads were buckled and broken. Life support systems crippled ancillary machinery shock-stopped, the star drive smashed. Thirty, forty, fifty passengers dead, eighty more in modules that could quit at any moment. A scan of the computer memory confirmed my fears. A meteor, shattering on impact, shredding through the ship 
as though it were so much paper mache. Both the primary and secondary communication systems had been destroyed. However, the automated distress beacon had survived and was bleeding its emergency signal across space. But after some quick computations, I discovered what a fat lot of good this would be to me. The ship was still some 19 light days from its destination star system, but the meteor collision had knocked her 10 degrees off course. With the star drive mangled, with no way to correct course, I'd miss my destination by a distance of three light days. The distress beacon signal would reach the system less than 360 hours before the ship herself. And no matter how I did the math, 360 hours was simply not enough time to boost a rescue ship into an interception orbit three light days out. Unable to decelerate, we'd continue on and on, out of the galaxy and forever. A corpsicle jockey is a jack of all trades and even a master of some, but effecting major repairs to a smashed star drive isn't one of them. I kicked away from the computer and let myself fetch up in one of the corners of my living space. If I went back into suspended animation with a Do Not Disturb sign on my coffin, I'd probably last years before the cryogenic systems eventually failed, backups and all. But that felt too much like ducking out. I'd be deserting the passengers who I was supposed to be looking after. Then an alternative occurred to me. The engineering sections were in vacuum, and all hatches leading there were jammed shut. So, trailing the biggest cylinder of vac seal, that is, gunk, I could find I set out across the hull with all my usual space-suited clumsiness. It took me ten minutes to waddle to the impact area, an elongated furrow with rippled metal edges. It was large enough to admit my arm, which I did to check the shape of the hole. My fingers passed the inner edge and were wriggling in the emptiness within when I pulled them out smartly. I just had the irrational fear that something was about to reach up and touch me. Gunking the hole took one or two minutes. Then I signaled the computer to flood atmosphere into the evacuated areas from all undamaged air tanks. This would leave me with no reserve in case of further leaks but that wouldn't matter soon. Back inside, and the computer had begun its idiotic demands for maintenance again. Hydraulic leaks and lighting faults and magnetic bearing fluctuations and... God! Wasn't it programmed for futility? Then I turned away and it suddenly said, They resemble a combination of jackrabbit and bulldog. They wear breeches, a red jacket, and spats. They love to fly and are the hobgoblins of mischief and sabotage. I clutched my hair and kicked the stupid machine, an action which pushed me forcibly back against the far wall. What the computer gibbered next, I don't know. But then I was too busy lasering my way through several jammed hatches until I reached engineering. On the way to the power core, I stopped to have a look at the star drive. By the weak illumination of the emergency lighting, I saw that the damage wasn't as bad as the computer had made out, though it was bad enough. The housing was split and debris embedded in the walls. The main dirochrome coil floated sprawled and unreeled, like something disemboweled. It was repairable, but not by me. 
There were people on board whose skills and knowledge would dismiss the task as child's play, but they were all tucked in nice and cold, and I was incapable of waking them. Sometime, while floating there, a spasm of self-preservation, of self-pity, must have overtaken me, because I suddenly found myself trying to shift the wreckage, trying to re-embowel the drive, getting nowhere, cutting my hands, my vision clouding wet with bitter tears. Round about the broken machinery, the shadows started whispering. I kicked away from the wall, propelling myself towards the door. It was time to go. If I was going to start hearing voices, it was time to go. I pushed into the power core and hung over the control console. As they say, you have to know how to do it right to do it wrong the right way. And I knew enough about antimatter reactors to handle this one in the right-wrong way, so as to cause detonation. The ship would vanish in a silent blaze of light and gamma radiation. No one would ever know what had happened. Well, so what? It'd give other corpsicle jockeys something to ponder on during their long, cold runs to the stars. I started pushing buttons to bypass the safeties. Instead, the consoles arced and crackled, blue sparks jolting me backwards to crash against the wall headfirst. I must have been rolling slowly in midair for some time, groggy and sick, when the shadows gathered about me, whispering again, like the hum of electronics, sometimes striking into a harsher sound, like the grind of meshing machinery. It grew and grew and was joined by my own maniacal laughter as something sticky as spiderweb plied my face. I thought a crowd was gathering around me, not quite seen, not quite invisible. Dimly comprehended, more by the mind than the eye. My rolling was stopped and something crawled onto my chest. Ruby eyes stared into mine. I was pushed out of the power core and set adrift in the corridors of the ship. The situation was so bizarre that my mind should have closed up shop for good. But paradoxically, it was this overwhelming grotesqueness that saved me, made me feel I was far off watching the situation the way a drunk will accept pink elephants, the way dreams, no matter how fantastic, are never questioned by the dreamer. Then the nightmare began. Along the corridor, down as far as I could see, the dead came creeping. White oblongs rolling and slowly tumbling in the ventilation currents. Corpsicles, now just plain corpses, having floated free from broken modules, were performing a zero-g dance macabre. And they were dancing towards me. I panicked for hand grips along the wall pushing and kicking my way into the star drive room, but I found no refuge there. In fact, it was worse. Superstitious fear crept the corridors, but sheer madness awaited me in the star drive room. The floating debris had been pushed to one side, and the star drive itself had been dismantled, roughly, plating ripped and dangling in midair, tacked onto the side of the drive, was something that looked like the beginnings of a jury-rig apparatus, all angular and unfinished. Then I saw, or 
almost saw them. The things that had stopped me destroying the ship. The things that had dismantled the star drive and had begun building that apparatus, phoenix-like from the wreckage. They were all gossamer and quicksilver, blurring here, sparking there, ruby-eyed shadows even when standing still, only once glimpsed from the corner of the eye, leaving me disbelieving what I'd seen. I fled back down the corridor to my living area, pushing past the floating corpses. There I stayed for a long time, thinking. Well after the adrenaline of shock and fear had gone, I raided the medical supplies for something that would keep me going for the long, long job of trying to save the damaged passenger coffins. Perhaps, after all, there was hope. If those things in the star drive room were doing what I thought they were, jury-rigging a gravity pulse generator, I was beginning to guess what those things were, and if I was right, that piece of constructive engineering of theirs would be dead against their natures. What we do, what principles we sacrifice to save our own skins. I allowed myself a cynical laugh and set to work. Some of the module repairs were easy, patchwork maintenance sufficing. Others required major work, while some were coffins in the true sense of the word. With the last of the endangered passengers either saved or decidedly dead, I returned with a great deal of hesitancy to the drive room, where I found the work on the pulse generator well advanced. Floating there in the hatchway, I felt something bump against my leg. It was one of those filmy cup shapes, though this one was less a cup, more a rubbery sphere with something inside, squirming. Before I could look closer, an invisible hand raced it from me. Then, for no apparent reason, the hatch slid shut on me, pinning me to the deck for several painful minutes until I was able to struggle free and drifted out into the corridor. So that was how they wanted to play it, was it? I should have guessed. I know now what they were, that they had probably coexisted with humanity for millennia, feeding on our anger and frustration like we feed on grain and cattle. And now I was taking them with us to the stars. They weren't about to let me blab about their existence. Hell, people would get self-conscious rather than angry when things went missing and machines broke down. It'd be tantamount to total famine. I got back to my living area, past no floating corpses this time, and always glancing back to see the shadows following. When I arrived, I slammed the hatch and dogged it tight. It was the only door not lasered to slag between me and them, and I didn't have much faith in it. I couldn't go back into suspended animation. They'd make sure of a malfunction, and I'd die in my sleep. Only if I could stay awake. I swallowed more stimulants, wondering what an overdose would do to me. The emergency beacon was still operating, bleeding its signal out into space. I sat at the computer for I don't know how long, my stomach making acid as I watched the floor, watched the air vents, watched every crack and crevice in the room. Suddenly, deep within the ship, came a sudden sound, like and unlike the discordant hum of a star drive in operation. The sound rose, swelled, filling the ship for an instant, and died abruptly. 
From the computer came a babble of electronic fright, a warning of fire in the star drive room. This was almost immediately replaced with, Fire extinguished. Reason unknown. Poor, stupid machine. There had almost been a note of hurt puzzlement in that last squawk. I checked the ship's course. It had been corrected by nearly nine degrees. A rescue ship would have no problem intercepting now. I should have been happy, but I wasn't. Their task complete. Now they'd come for me. That was hours ago, days ago, weeks, years, I don't know. The computer crashed not long ago. Rather childish of them, spiteful. They're here now. They whisper like meshing machine parts. I hear their soft jackrabbit tread on the decks, on the walls and overhead. Bulldog faces leer at me from the edge of my vision. I've, I found a small log recorder with a fresh capsule, and I've been recording ever since the life support went out in this compartment. I'll swallow the capsule when I'm finished. It'll be safe there. The human anatomy is outside of their frame of reference. Only machinery. Small, losable items. Getting cold. Getting hard to breathe. Damn. The recorder's seizing up. That was Rick Kennett's log recording found in a dead man's gut as read by Drew Sebastini. All right. I've mispronounced names from time to time, but one of my editors filled me in that I'd been mispronouncing Drew's last name every single time. Though I had it broken out phonetically for me, so I trust that Sebastini is right. <laughs> you haven't experienced true horror until you've weathered a winter in the bleak, frozen waste of the Canadian prairies, and Drew has survived quite a few. He's been spinning tales since he was old enough to hold a pencil. Most often, Drew flexes his creative muscle as an advertising copywriter and creative director. He hopes you won't hold that against him. But in his spare time, he moonlights as a voiceover artist for radio and video commercial work. Drew lives in Saskatoon, Canada, with his wife, son, and a menagerie of furry creatures. Thank you, Drew. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Mm-hmm.